Hello and welcome to the Why podcast from Think at London Business School, in which faculty talk about their research and what it means for you and your business. I'm your host, Cathy Bruce, and for this episode, my guest is Alex Edmonds. Alex is Professor of Finance at London Business School, and his research interests are in corporate finance, responsible business and behavioural finance. Alex wrote a, a paper recently, which he titled The End of ESG, causing a huge stir on LinkedIn and lots of discussion around it often by people who hadn't actually read the paper itself. So I was really pleased to be able to invite Alex here today to talk about his paper with his usual clarity and balance and explain everything that he meant by that slightly provocative title and why it actually does matter. Alex, hello. Thank you so much for finding the time to talk to us today. Thanks very much for inviting me, Cathy. So Alex, why did you call your paper The End of ESG? Well, that's a great question because it, it seems to be uh, quite suicidal for me because I'm known as somebody as an advocate for ESG. It's the topic of my first book. So why do I want to claim the end? But it's actually the end of ESG as a niche subfield. So what I'm talking about the end of ESG is that if this is something which is integrated, that everybody cares about because it's re- relevant for long-term value, then we don't need to think about ESG as a subdiscipline. And the inspiration for this title was an article called The End of Behavioural Finance by Dick Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And behavioural finance used to be a subfield where most people thought when you wanted to understand stock prices, you need to understand dividends and profits and fundamentals and risks. And there were these weird behavioralists who were looking at investor sentiment. And he was arguing that we always need to take investor sentiment into account. Why? Because who decides the stock prices? They're humans, and humans are affected by emotions. So just like Dick Thaler's article was arguing for the mainstreaming of behavioural finance, I'm arguing for the um, mainstreaming of ESG to something that should be just a fundamental part of understanding business, understanding valuations, is understanding the impact of a company on its environment and wider society. What reaction has it received? So the reaction, I think, has been generally very, very positive. So um, I posted it on SSRN, the Social Science Research Network. And sometimes in the past, when I've posted papers there, it says, oh, your paper is a top 10 download in the field of corporate governance or in the field of behavioral economics. Um, This got a top 10 download across all of the SSRN journals, which I was uh, really pleased by. So that is typically what, what leads to a downloaded article. These are articles on, say, vaccination and COVID, not so much business articles. So I was, I was really gratified um, that this is an article which has been downloaded a lot. And I think it's of interest to, to, to actually both camps, which is great because why I wanted to write the article is to end the polarisation that we see about ESG. So on the one hand, the ESG advocates far from being offended by the title of the end of ESG, if they actually read it, then they say, oh, yes, he's arguing that what we're doing should be seen as mainstream and not niche. And then for the sceptics about ESG, when they see, well, actually, he's saying that ESG is relevant for me, I can understand the argument. Yes, it's something which affects long-term value, then they're going to be less hostile towards ESG. I think um, the, the more, if there has been negative reaction, it has been for people who might not have actually read the paper. So I have seen when I, it's been posted on LinkedIn and then somebody says, oh, it's crazy to call it the end of ESG because ESG is at a peak now. There's so much money flowing into ESG funds. Uh, but those are people who might have just been looking at the title or the abstract and not actually reading the paper, um, certainly from people who've, who've read 
um, the paper, and I have sent it to people asking for their objections or for the concerns, because with a working paper, you always want to make sure that you can improve it. I haven't heard any so far. Obviously, if any listeners read it, and they find that there's certain arguments that I've made which are weak, or there's certain considerations that I have not taken into account, I'd be delighted to hear from you. Thanks. Um, and I love what you say about don't need to get into angry fights between ESG believers and deniers. I mean, I think that just that your that sort of approach of actually, you know, listening and learning and, and discussing is just obviously a better way forward in, in so many issues, isn't it? I think so, because ESG has been really politicised. So generally, um, Democrats are pro-ESG and Republicans are anti-ESG. And so what this means is that um, when it's when it's linked to identity, then actually evidence then goes out the window. And we've seen this with, with climate change. So there's some good work which comes out of the Yale Cultural Cognition Pro Project, where there was a, a video which um, said 97% of, of climate scientists agree that climate change is man-made. And so that should be really powerful. If 97% of climate change scientists agree with that, then everybody should agree. But then the video goes on and says, Accept there's people who deny it, like such as this Republican and that Republican. And so then if you are a Republican, then you think, well, to be a true Republican, I need to be a climate change denier. And so when you see some articles on ESG by some pro-ESG advocates who are arguing, oh, let's um, explain why um, Mike Pence is, is wrong and so on, then if that politicises the issue, then if you are a Republican, then you're not going to be listening to the arguments because you think, as, as a Republican, I should be anti-ESG. So what I wanted to do is, is just write it as, as about what creates long-term value for shareholders and society, and that should be something that um, you're interested in, regardless of your political persuasion. And then when I see the articles that get shared and liked and, and tweeted and well-read about ESG, they are on one side or the other. So if you want to attack ESG, then be as below the belt as you can. Say these people are woke, they don't understand business, they're hippies, and then you're going to get lots of people reading it who, who just don't like ESG. And then if you're on the other side, I've seen some sort of quite um, unprofessional attacks from the ESG advocates saying, oh, the, denier, the, 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 the people who are sceptics are deniers, they're like climate change deniers. One article called them Taliban and Flat Earthers which again, I think is, is quite insulting, yet it gets a lot of popularity, a lot of likes by saying, yeah, tell it to them, sock it to them, yeah, you tell them. And why I'm so gratified that my article has been um, widely read is that despite not being partisan and therefore not having a natural set of supporters saying, yeah, this is the strongest defense of ESG or this is the strongest attack, people have liked it because of the balanced uh, picture it's trying to paint. Yeah, wonderful. Well, here's to that balance and perspective, much required in our society at the moment, I would say. And, and, and it, that's, that's what I hope to, to get across. And I'm, I'm really glad that, that that message has resonated with people. So what, what was the starting point for this particular paper? So the starting point was the debate and the controversy we see about ESG right now. So you have some ESG advocates who are arguing that ESG is necessary to save the world. And because of such bold claims, then you have other people attacking ESG, complaining that it's woke, it's not relevant for business. So why the article is provocatively titled The End of ESG is by highlighting that ESG is something that should be seen as mainstream. 
So I think the reason why there's so much of a debate about ESG is it has been seen as something niche. And so if it's seen as niche, then it will have its supporters who are trying to make it more sound important, and then it will have its attackers who are arguing that it's actually not relevant. But what I wanted to stress in this article is this is something that all investors and all companies should take seriously, regardless of your political persuasion, or importantly, regardless of your role within a company. Why has the the whole issue of ESG investing become so controversial? I think one reason why we have such controversy is ESG advocates have pushed ESG very strongly, and in fact, perhaps more strongly than what the evidence will suggest. For example, there are people who claim that ESG always pays off and leads to better long-term company performance. And they also suggest either explicitly or implicitly that ESG is even more important than standard business issues. So it's more important that a company reduces its carbon footprint or improves its employee diversity rather than things such as corporate culture, strategy, productivity, capital allocation and the like. And then when you make such strong claims, if they're not based on the evidence or if it's seen to be at the expense of business or an alternative to improving business, then you will naturally get people from the other side who are arguing, hang on a moment, why are we now as managers or investors focusing on these ESG issues instead of business issues? And so that leads to a backlash where people are calling ESG woke because they're seeing it as non-core. So what I wanted to write in the article is how many ESG issues are important issues for the business. So we should be taking account diversity inclusion within a company. Why? Not necessarily because we're on some social um, goal to improve diversity, but because this is good for companies. So if a company has an inclusive workplace and inclusive corporate culture, you're going to hire better people and have better decision making. Similarly, if a company is going to reduce its carbon footprint, then employees might be more likely to work for it, Companies, might, um, customers might be more likely to buy from you, and also you're less likely to be fined for the government. But on the flip side, those issues are not necessarily more important than other issues which are affecting long-term value. So yes, we want to improve diversity and inclusion, but there's other ways in which we can improve um, corporate culture, just having meaningful work, and skills development, great work-life balance, and so forth, those issues should get just as much priority as other issues such as diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and these are all you call in, intangible assets, as opposed to the tangible assets, which are things like quarterly returns and things that, the numbers that you can measure. That's correct. So uh, for a long time, actually, for, for several decades, people have now realised that the value of a company doesn't just come from its profits or dividends or cash flows, but it comes from these intangible assets. So in 1992, there was an influential article called The Balance Scorecard, which argued that in order to understand the balance, you need to have, so in order to understand the business, you need to have a balance between financial and non-financial measures. And so the idea of looking at non-financial things has been around for for many, many years, for decades, in fact. Um, But people object to perhaps the ESG Begray, saying, well, this is something that is really new. Let's now try to have special ratings, which are going to rate some ESG of people. These ratings need to agree. Let's have some set of metrics that every company needs to uh, measure. Whereas in the past, when people realised that you have these intangible assets, they never said, let's try to measure them. There's no rating or measurement of the quality of a company's management. 
But instead, they said, well, let's try and consider that. And similarly, there wasn't not some set of metrics that every company had to um, release in order to give the value of their intangible assets, because we knew that this differed from company to company. So for some companies, maybe their most intangible asset was their most was their innovative um, product line or your set of, of new patents. For another company, it might be its corporate culture. For another company, it might be its brand strength. But it might differ from company to company. Um, and what the concern is with ESG is people are force-fitting and asking everybody to uh, report some same set of metrics when this was never the case for people who are already in intangible assets. So I think you were, you were, you were talking about different intangible assets and different factors that drive long-term value. And you were saying that that's something that um, investors have always considered and, and it's also something... And um, ESG is. I, I think the. I think the the main point to sort of draw out is is you know your this this distinction not distinction but the fact you say is extremely important and nothing special, and and perhaps just to sort of talk about both of those both of those for a, a while. So why do I say ESG is extremely important? Because if these factors matter for long term financial returns then this means that any executive or any investor should take this into account, even if you're somebody without ESG in the title. So let's do a fund manager. And the goal of you, your fund is to maximize long-term risk-adjusted returns for your clients. You should invest in companies with strong ESG performance. Why? Because companies with strong ESG performance will ultimately deliver stronger financial performance. So again, that's something which doesn't depend on your job title. It doesn't depend on your political persuasion. The fact that many of these ESG factors ultimately translate into financial returns means that you should be taking them into account. And at the same time, what do you mean when you say it's nothing special? So when I'm saying it's nothing special, there are many other factors which lead to long-term financial performance. We've discussed a number of them, such as productivity, capital allocation, management quality, and so forth. And so if a company wants to um, win headlines or even to attract investors, they will say, look how much money we're now donating to charity, look at what work we're doing to, for the community. And those things aren't bad things, but those things can often be a distraction from long-term financial performance. So one example is Danon, where Emmanuel Faber said, oh, we're going to become an entreprise mission, which is a company where you're writing in the articles of association that you have a purpose beyond long-term financial, beyond financial performance. And yet he was ousted. And why? Because um, he'd been there six, and a half years. It wasn't a short time, but in that, that six and a half years, the company's performance had been flat when the peers had gone up by about 50%. So one concern there was that he was so focused on ESG that uh, he was distracted from the core business of managing a company. It's just like if you're a, a professor and you want to teach a lecture, well, how can you um, improve the quality of your lecture? Yes, where you can bike to the office or the lecture theatre rather than taking an Uber. Maybe you can use ethnic minorities as your examples in your cases. But I think the core goal as a professor is make sure your classes are really good. Make sure that you've prepared, make sure that the cases are relevant, make sure it's both theoretically rigorous and applied um, and practical. Uh, but often you can get caught in these distractions. And so this is why I wanted to highlight that ESG was nothing special, is that, yes, you want to consider them when you want to think about long-term financial performance, but you shouldn't put them in a pedestal compared to other drivers of financial performance. 
Um, and at one point in your paper, you say uh, an ESG rating isn't fact, it's opinion. Could you expand on that? Yeah, so what is an ESG rating? So what, you're try what it tries to do is evaluate the ESG of a company. But if we think about ESG as intangible assets, then we know that it's really hard to have an opinion on the quality of a company's corporate culture, on the quality of a firm's management, or on its innovative capabilities, for example. Now, with ratings, you're trying to make um, something which is very complex and very nebulous into uh, something which you can grade on a scale like A, B, or C or something. And there's no problem with that in and of itself. The greater problem is that people argue that these ratings need to agree with each other. So a well-known fact is that ESG ratings disagree with, with each other quite strongly. Different providers will have different ratings. But I don't think that's a problem. Because when you're trying to value something or trying to assess something intangible, there will be differences of opinion. So if you look at equity research reports, they will assess whether a company is a buy or a sell. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs will legitimately have different views on this. Nobody argues that these brokers are not doing their job because their ratings differ. They will say, well, that's fine. We're going to get a difference of opinion. But there are many people who think, oh, I should be able to take an ESG rating. That should be seen as fact. I should be able to be an ESG investor investing only on behalf of that rating. But when we recognise that somebody's subjective opinion of the ESG of a company, we realise that, well, if we want to be an ESG investor, we can't just take that rating into account and make our decision exclusively based on that. We'd like to look at other ratings and other sources of information and do our own research. Yeah, and you say that KPIs, you can include ESG metrics like carbon emissions, but it's also going to include other dimensions uh, I think you mentioned customer net promoter scores or new patent generations. And you, and, you, and you talk about sort of broadening the perspective on ESG. So rather than it becoming a, a sort of box ticking exercise where it's about compliance, it, it should be viewed as a value creation tool. So companies are um, reporting ever more ESG metrics and investors are making their investment decisions based on some of these ESG metrics. But if we think about ESG as an intangible asset, we know that you cannot reduce these intangible assets just to a set of metrics because they are things which are qualitative as, as well as quantitative. Again, how would you assess the quality of management? Would you look at the number of years they've been a CEO or look at where they got their MBA? Well, maybe you look at that, but you look at many things beyond that because you cannot just reduce quality of management to a single set of metrics. And similarly, this should be the case for ESG. Right, People care maybe about diversity and inclusion, and they will look at, well, the percentage of women in the boardroom or the percentage of ethnic minorities in the boardroom. But that's a really, really blunt and incomplete measure about diversity. You could be a company that doesn't care at all about diversity, and you can put a minority on the boardroom to tick the box. What we really care about is diversity and inclusion. What does inclusion ha in involve? It involves having a psychologically safe corporate culture, where people are willing to speak up and willing to um, have their views expressed, where you can launch an idea or suggest a proposal and not be worried so much if it fails and so on. Um, but people are forgetting all about this and reducing um, this complex issue of ESG to a couple of simple metrics. And then where is this coming from? I think it's because ESG is such a bandwagon that everybody wants to claim that they're doing ESG. 
Now, if you're coming to an issue and you don't have much expertise, the best way to do it is to reduce it to a set of numbers. So let's say I have no expertise about Gaelic football. Well, I don't know what it is to be a good player. I could still count the number of goals that somebody scores and say that Joe is better than David because he scored some more goals. And similarly, you might have no ability to evaluate the um, inclusion of a corporate culture. But if you just look at the metric, then you can say, oh, look, we're doing ESG and you can reduce this to a box that that, that can be ticked. So I think for people who want to do ESG and to take it seriously and to understand how it looks long term value, just to realize that there's so many important issues beyond just the metrics just like just think of it like intangible assets you would never want to evaluate a strategy or um, the quality of management or innovative capability with a couple of measures you might look at some measures but you will realize that those measures are only part of the picture and 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 you talk about this broadening out of the idea of and, and that a lot of metrics at the moment capture this idea of doing no harm, so minimising the damage that a company is inflicting upon the society around it, um, when actually what they need to be thinking about is actively doing good. Yeah, so if we think about ESG as something which creates long-term value, we need to realise that different companies will create value in different ways. And therefore, if you want to measure the ESG performance of a company, you will need to look at different things because it depends on the company's business model. For example, Unilever might measure the number of people they reach with a hand-washing program. Vodafone might look at the number of people that lifted out of poverty with M-Pesa, their mobile money service. And similarly, you could have uh, Olam, this um, Singaporean agribusiness, which looks at the number of smallholder farmers they put through their sustainable farming education programs. However... Because there are many people who want to do ESG by the numbers, they want everybody to report exactly the same thing. Why? Because if everybody is reporting exactly the same thing, then you can see, well, who's reporting the higher numbers. Now, if you're getting people to report exactly the same thing, they have to be things which are common to all companies. And you couldn't get people to report the number of people they've lifted out of poverty with uh, mobile money because not everybody does mobile money. So what people typically look at are things like carbon emissions, water usage, workplace injuries, and so on, which is, as you were saying, Cathy, a do-no-harm measure. How much harm do you create for to society? And those things should not be ignored, right? So using water, emitting carbon, is something which is negative, and you should try to reduce. But that really doesn't capture the essence and the value of the company, which is how much value it creates. So sometimes companies might be blacklisted because they might um, be um, emitting some carbon, and that just ignores all of the good that they do. Just to give you an example, if you look at semiconductor companies, when um, you manufacture semiconductors, you release perfluorocarbons to the atmosphere. And that's really bad for trapping in heat. It's actually even worse than carbon. So that will do badly if you're comparing the impact of semiconductor companies directly on global warming. However, semiconductors are used in solar panels if we want to um, electrify the world and have Teslas, you're going to have to need semiconductors. But because um, the metric of carbon emissions doesn't take into account the way in which your products actually lead to decarbonisation, then that's something which is going to be misleading. I'm interested in, the idea, in this idea of um, ESG-linked pay and your thoughts on that. And you mentioned uh, a PwC study saying that 
92% of large US companies and 72% of large UK firms are using ESG metrics now in their incentive plans. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so people are arguing that uh, because ESG is so important, we need to link CEO pay to it to get companies to do ESG. But I disagree with this. Why? Because, yes, ESG is important, but so are many other things. So why are we linking CEO pay to ESG metrics, not things such as productivity or capital allocation or new innovations and so on? And number two, when we recognise that ESG is a set of intangible assets, as I mentioned earlier, we've looked at the importance of intangibles at least for 30 years with things like the balanced scorecard. And the original authors of the balanced scorecard, Kaplan and Norton, what they said is that you should report those other relevant measures, let's say net promoter score or employee turnover and so on. But you shouldn't link pay to them. Why? Because if you link pay to them, well, number one, this should be unnecessary because if indeed these factors matter because they affect long-term performance, why don't you just link pay to long-term performance? And number two, if you link pay to them, you know, then you're going to get people to focus on only the quantitative dimensions being measured and not the many other qualitative um, dimensions which you might care about. So again, if you're going to link CEO pay to the number of minorities in um, senior management, well, what a CEO might do is hire externally, some hire from, ex- from outside, some minorities to be a top executive. And that might actually worsen inclusion because that might actually suggest to juniors within the organisation that it's really difficult for you to rise upwards because we're parachuting in people from the outside because they tick a diversity box and they will improve my pay. Um, I was really interested also um, that you, you look at different, how, how, uh, what things are classified as ESG or non-ESG. And you make the point that this is too simple and too sort of binary a way of looking at it. Uh, and you mentioned that, you know, before Russia invaded Ukraine, many investors thought that defence companies were non-ESG. But actually, now some of them are saying that perhaps it is. Um is this something that people just need to sort of approach differently in terms of how how we think about it? So another problem of ESG is that when it's a label, people think, OK, we need to classify companies as being ESG or non-ESG, like um, as if it's a black or white thing. And so previously, people thought that defence companies were not ESG. And then after Russia invaded Ukraine, people realised that they are. ESG. And I think people are now changing their views on um, maybe oil and gas companies when they realise in an energy crisis, we do need non-renewable sources of energy because we don't yet have enough renewables to to power the world as it currently stands. But if we again drop this ESG label and think about long-term value, we never have a classification of companies into the ones that create long-term value and the ones that don't. Instead, there's a continuum. We might think that companies like Amazon and, and um, Pfizer and Tesla do create long-term value. Now, does a bank create long-term value? One might say it still does. It's not it's not in an industry like um, pharmaceuticals or tech, but you might think financial services is still useful because it's really enabling. Then you might go to a clothing company. Does that create value? Well, perhaps less so in terms of solving social problems, but people still need clothes. But when we think about this as a continuum, I think that's a much better conversation rather than trying to divide um, companies into the good ones and the bad ones. Let's think if if we were to divide our students into the ones with with potential and the ones without potential, 
and focus our um, efforts on the former, that would be really bad. Instead, let's think we've got a huge range and a huge diversity of students. Some of them might be newer to the subject than others, and so they might need a different approach when, when teaching them. But rather than classifying people or companies into labels, I think we should just recognise the continuum and all the different shades of grey. Mm, that, that's really interesting because there seems to be so much polarisation generally at the moment in terms of you know how people think about a lot of different subjects, and this seems to be a great example of that. Um, do you have any sort of takeaways for business leaders listening to this in terms of how they should be looking at um, their own strategies? Yeah, so I think the main takeaway is to not so much think about ESG or is this something going to improve my ESG rating or not? Or is this something which will be classified as ESG because if so, I'll do it. And if it won't be classified, then don't do it because I won't win any points. But instead, just to think about, well, what are the drivers of long-term value into my business? And I think the, 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 the positive contribution the ESG movement has had to this debate is to make companies realise that things that they didn't previously think were relevant because they mainly impact society – they do ultimately bounce back, bounce back and affect the company. For example, a company's impact on the local community, before people might say, well, that doesn't affect long-term value. If I was to do a spreadsheet calculation of the effects of my community relationships on profits, it's really difficult to quantify even roughly how much better community engagement will lead to my profits. But if we forget about spreadsheets and think from a, a more common sense or business standpoint, does the value of the company depend on my relationships with the community? It absolutely does, right? Because if I'm seen as a company which is um, polluting the community um, or not engaging with the community, then people might not be willing to work for me or they might not be willing to buy for me. It might be that um, there's regulation against me. So Uber, for example, when they moved into London, people were concerned that they were not playing by the rules. And so this is why there was the potential that their license would have been revoked. So I think when we think about long-term value drivers of a company, let's expand beyond just the financial measures and the directly obvious non-financial measures like management quality and corporate culture to some of these other things. But we still will care about something only if it affects long-term value. So these things have to be material. So as an example of something which might be immaterial, if you're a tech company, and you want to have an arms race with other tech companies to be the leaders in terms of carbon emissions, does that really matter for your business? Probably not, because um, your carbon emissions is not something that people will be evaluating a tech company for. It doesn't capture your main impact on society. Other things which might be more important are things such as misinformation, cybersecurity, cyberbullying. So those might be the dimensions that you would like to improve. But we need to think about, for my particular business, what are the, the, the most relevant factors which are going to be affecting that value. Great. That, that's, that's really useful and, and um, excellent practical advice that everyone can take on board. Thank, thanks again for, for giving uh, exposure to my research. really appreciate it and uh, looking forward to, to hearing it. Great. Thank you. The Why podcast is brought to you by the editorial team at Think at London Business School. Follow us here for more episodes on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more faculty research insights, go to london.edu forward slash think. You can also sign up there for our free regular email newsletter to get tips and tools and news of our alumni direct to your inbox. 
Thanks for listening. Have a great day.